Turn your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read while you're turning there, and then I'll pray for our time. It says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thanks for gathering us as your people. Thank you for your word. Help us to respond in this moment. Sensitize our hearts to, to hear your words, to, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be corrected. May your good words go forth today and not my own. May your thoughts go forth and not my own. Help this message to point to the finished work and person of your son, Jesus who's made it so that we can be declared righteous before you, accepted. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I recently came across a site from IBM called a Tone Analyzer. Uh, I originally thought it had something to do with singing, so I was going to kind of keep moving on, but uh, the subtitle on the page said, uh, this service uses linguistic analysis to detect and to interpret emotions, social tendencies, and language style cues found in text. It's pretty interesting, right? So scrolling down the page, this tone analyzer allows you you to adjust the tone of your content, such as a customer service chat, an, an email message, a corporate announcement, or even your own words by entering the text into a box and then clicking analyze. So then, once the text is then analyzed by sentences, the results of your tone appear in a graph below that records emotions, language style, and social tendencies. So what did I do? I put in one of my own emails. If you're new here, if you've been here for a while, you know that I typically email everyone on the city about membership, about events, about different things, and respond to questions. And so, anyways, I put in the welcome email for the city, and many of you have received that. I think it's pretty, pretty friendly, I think it's pretty welcoming, and the text analyzer, the tone analyzer, even agreed. They found my email to be 53% likely to communicate joy to its recipients. But it also said that it was 12% likely to communicate sadness. It said it was 24% likely to communicate fear, 16% likely to communicate disgust, and 23% likely to communicate anger. So I'm still not sure what to make of all that. I don't know if I need to change my email or not, but I'm just going to roll with the fact that it brings mostly happiness to the majority of you who receive it. Nevertheless, I didn't enter any more emails after that. Instead, what I did next was I put in this week's passage from James. I put that into the tone analyzer, and if you just take one look at this passage, you can probably guess which emotion scored in the highest. It certainly wasn't joy, that scored the lowest. 
Sadness came in a little bit higher and fear came in higher than sadness, but both, the, both of those still trailed behind anger, which came in at 20, 29% likely. But the strongest emotion registered and communicated in these words, if you receive this message from Pastor James, if it's dropped in your inbox, these words will most likely communicate disgust. If you're hearing these words from Pastor James, they are 68% likely to communicate disgust, according to this tone analyzer. And so the question follows, disgust at what or who exactly? Well, there's both a what and a who that answer this question, and the who that James is disgusted at is the rich, particularly the unrighteous rich, those who he starts out addressing immediately in verse one. But why? And then what is the what exactly that James is disgusted at? Well, it's the very thing that's at the heart of this passage, injustice, particularly oppression, but overall injustice. Pastor James is disgusted by the injustice that he sees committed by the rich against those who are employed by them, many of whom are poor. But as with all of scripture, we know that these aren't just the words of the author James, they are also the words of God, the supreme author. God shares in this disgust against greed, the misuse of wealth, and injustice. And it's in these words, in this tone, that God wants us to hear his conclusion about greed and oppression and the misuse of wealth and injustice in our day and how we should think about it and respond to it. And so as we'll see today in this passage, Pastor James now takes a different tone. He goes from pastoral to prophetic, meaning that his tone echoes the declarations and the warnings given by the prophets in the Old Testament to both Israel and their enemies, many of whom spoke of God's concern for the oppressed and the needy. Isaiah speaks and prophesies about the Lord coming to, to visit a vineyard that he's planted, representing his people and upon visiting this vineyard, he tears it down upon finding injustice and bloodshed and outcries of violence. Amos' prophecies condemn the social injustices that occurred within Israel during the reign of the wicked king Jeroboam. And so God's disgust for injustice and his concern for social justice is something that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible and is close to the heart of God. Many who study this passage believe that James now goes from addressing believers within his, his congregation thus far to addressing those who are outside of his congregation. Those whose actions are now impacting God's people within the church. And so by addressing the unrighteousness of those outside, he's looking to comfort and bring healing to those affected by this oppression and injustice within this gathering. And so Pastor James, he's straight up. He's not pulling any punches as he goes from reasoning with the ambitious in the previous passage to now rebuking the rich. He sets this up like a divine lawsuit against the unrighteous rich, using witnesses and testimonies and legal terms which will now bring these people into God's court. And the charges that they are faced with are the misuse of wealth and injustice. But we'll walk through this passage and make three stops in this trial concerning how James addresses these things. And so, firstly, we'll see a reasoning with the rich. 
Next, we'll see an indictment for injustice. And lastly, we'll see a conclusive condemnation. And so we see in chapter 5, verse 1, James begins saying, come now, you rich. So just to be clear from the start, James is not addressing wealthy believers within his congregation or even all of the wealthy people outside of his church. He's not pitting the rich against the poor or the poor against the rich or implying that having wealth and being wealthy is bad. Although he doesn't state it explicitly here, the Bible in many places speaks of the joys and the benefits of wealth. Make note that being wealthy is not a sin, but it is possible to use wealth to commit sin. So when James speaks to the rich here in verse 1, he's calling out the rich who are particularly guilty of something, which is why he continues saying, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The way that this sentence begins with these words echoes again back to prophecies of judgment in the Old Testament where those who opposed God and his people wept and howled at his judgment after turning away countless opportunities to repent. But these rich here, these unrighteous rich, why should they weep and howl? Well, because they've been doing exactly the opposite presently. They're laughing in their luxury, satisfied in their fullness, and rejoicing in all of the things that they've attained for themselves, unaware and even impervious to the fact that there's a God who they're accountable to. But again, why should they weep? Verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. The rich should weep because this hedonistic way of living and this egotism that they possess, it will come to an end. Because of excess, their lavish food and drink will rot, their expensive clothes will wear away, and their money and their resources will corrode. This is the fleeting pleasure of riches that the Bible talks about all throughout. You can't take them with you. They will fade away. These rich who have laid up treasure in the last days, as verse 3 says, will only be able to hoard it and hold on to it long enough to see it tarnished before their eyes. Again, the sin that the rich have committed here is not being wealthy and having these things. It's the misuse of their wealth, the hoarding up of it, the greediness behind it, the believing that in the amassing of these things, they will find all sufficiency. The reason that God's judgment will bring misery on them is because of their greed and selfishness and their laying up these treasures for themselves, trusting in them. And there's evidence here. The evidence of that greed is the corrosion from the excess, unused gold and silver that they've hoarded up for themselves. Many of them piling up gold and silver in their vaults. And because it's unused, it begins to corrode. And that corrosion is now evidence that exposes them as unfaithful stewards. And the corrosion that now consumes their gold and silver represents the way God's judgment will consume and corrode them. These words sound familiar? Treasure and rotting, moths and corrosion. James, again, like any true younger brother, borrows something from here from his older brother, Jesus, who said in Matthew chapter six, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
listen, although this happened millenniums ago, this isn't foreign to us. We don't need to travel too far in order to see the excessive lavishness and the greed that's displayed by many people in this world, particularly in this nation, in our context. You know the image, you know the description. The snobbish rich person, the wealthy businessman who doesn't speak to you in the office, who always is telling everybody about his most recent new purchase. The rich person cutting you off in traffic in an expensive car. The selfish, the condescending, flaunting the wealth. We we see these people every time we go to the grocery store in the magazine racks, at the sporting events, in in the glass suites. Their wealth profiled on the documentaries. Again, it's not that they're wealthy. Some wealth is is hard-earned and well-deserved. It's the excessive wealth, the flaunting, the greed, the selfishness, and the fervency of people that seek to pursue as much wealth as they can, seeking to be ultimately satisfied in it. And so you say, yeah, I see that, and I can think of a few rich people who need to hear these words that James is talking about. But that didn't have anything to do with me. I'm not wealthy in any sense of the term. But you are. Listen, James says, we've talked about this before. In this nation, sitting where you're sitting, wearing whatever you're wearing, driving whatever it is you're driving, living wherever you're living, holding whatever device you're holding, we're the wealthy. And the question for us is not how much wealth do you possess, but how much does wealth possess you? Is your heart completely satisfied with the food you eat and drink and the clothes you buy and the excess of the things that you have and even the things that are available to you? This is what Jesus calls laying up treasures on earth. And it's what James says will bring the judgment of God. Trust and ultimate satisfaction in these things will destroy you. Notice from this text what these people trust in to fulfill them It's going to one day serve as evidence to condemn them. And our possessions, if we seek to find our lasting hope, our eternal joy, our ultimate satisfaction in those things, they will do the same to us. And so the reasoning, the warning to the rich here is come now. Come now, if your heart is in the treasure of this world, if your satisfaction is in the pursuit of how much you can obtain for yourself, if you've been using what you've earned and what you've been ultimately given by God to squander on yourself and for your own purposes, know that the judgment of God is coming. It matters how we use the wealth that we have been given. And again, for us, in light of this warning, repent. Notice that James reasons with the rich to weep in light of judgment. But if today, if you are here and you identify with these unrighteous rich, if you identify with this self-indulgence, with this squandering, God reasons with you to repent in light of his grace. Turn from trusting in your possessions and finding sufficiency in storing up treasure for yourselves and recognize Not only that these things will be destroyed and they will destroy us, but there is accountability greater than ourselves. So let's proceed. James now now proceeds from reasoning with the rich about their misuse of wealth to indicting the rich for their committing injustice. The evidence continues to stack up in this courtroom against the unrighteous rich 
as two witnesses will now come forward to testify against them. Look at verse 4. It says, behold, or look, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the, the, the ears of the Lord of hosts. Witness number one, the defrauded wages of the laborers. Witness number two, the cries of the harvesters. This greed of the unrighteous rich not only offends God, but it abuses others. You've heard of affluenza, right? Perhaps you remember the case of the teenager who killed a mother and a daughter and two others while driving drunk with a restricted license. He goes to court and instead of pleading guilty, the teen's lawyer argues that he has affluenza, a condition where a person has the inability to understand the consequences of their actions due to their financial privilege. This term affluenza is also used to diagnose the condition where a person experiences anxiety or waste or overload due to the dogged pursuit of more. Well, these unrighteous rich here, they fit this description perfectly. This is their condition. They show all the symptoms. Their affluenza manifests in both carelessness and callousness, showing both greed and insensitivity towards others. Listen, I wonder in a in a context like ours, in a nation such as ours, if we too share a kind of affluenza, a heart that doggedly pursues the wealth of our own desires, maybe not just money, but the treasures of our careers, our education, our economic status, our ethnicity, Anything we're seeking to identify and, and find satisfaction in, looking to fill ourselves. I wonder if we suffer from this, while at the same time causing us to be insensitive and callous to those around us. The text now tells us a little bit about who these rich were. Historically, they were landowners in the Roman Empire who employed hired workers, usually poor, who, to work in their fields. Pay was often given at the end of each day because the poor needed to be paid at the end of each day to feed their families. Many of them lived hand to mouth, and so the rich that James accuses here, they oppressed the poor and committed injustice against them by either paying them unfairly with low wages or high rates of taxation or appropriating their crops or just not paying them at all, continuing to get richer and richer, hoarding up their wealth for themselves while also avoiding any penalties from the legal system. And look, this wasn't just an isolated practice amongst individual landowners. This was widespread in both the public and private sector of the Roman Empire. One could even call it systemic. And so the poor who often had no rights or equality upon being defrauded of their wages could either passively endure the injustice committed against them by finding other work or working twice as hard, or they could make an attempt to cry out injustice only to be, as James already described in chapter 2, dragged into court by the rich and condemned condemned by the system which worked in the favor of the rich. So the oppression of the rich not only exploited the poor, but it degraded them. The rich considering their own lives of, worth, of more worth and more value than the lives of the poor and their families. 
What we see happening here in the first century of the Roman Empire is nothing new. It's injustice on full display. And sure, this was a different day with a different time with different customs and policies, but if we're honest, the same types of injustices still exist today. Certainly, yes, we've progressed as a society since these days in, in many areas, but don't we still see oppression, even systemic oppression in different forms? So often when we think of oppression, we might picture the more overt kinds of oppression or injustice happening in the other nations of the world. Underpaid workers in struggling countries, serfdom, child labor practices in impoverished nations, and we should think about and even respond to these injustices. But to zoom in a little bit closer on the map, do we notice the injustices that exist in our context? in our cities, in our communities, yes, even in places with so much opportunity and freedom. So the question isn't if injustice exists today, but do we recognize it? Do we identify it? And how do we respond to it? How do the people of God respond to injustice when we see it and when we're affected by it? What's our response when we see the headlines about discriminatory lending amongst banks? Redlining in housing markets, gerrymandering in education, the jacked up interest rates and the poverty cycles and debt traps that are payday loans and title loans. Discriminatory pay practices. The list could go on. These are only kinds of injustices that take place economically, but if we just zoom out again for a minute, what about injustices in general that take place due to racism or sexism, the mass murder of the unborn, human trafficking, or the oppression that comes from the hand of structural systems? Sure, we have different terms for it today, but the sin is still the same, injustice, oppression. And listen, instead of ascribing these things to certain political ideologies or parties, let's, as the people of God, embrace these things with compassion and with the redeeming grace of God. Why? Because these are things that affect not just people in general who are made in the image of God, but these things affect the people of God as well. Again, which is why James is talking to Christians about the oppression that they're facing in this passage. This isn't necessarily because they're Christians. This is because there is injustice and oppression in the world. This is a part of the sinful world that we live in. So Christian, maybe some of these injustices haven't come knocking at your doorstep yet. But for those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus, just, just stick around. Both history and God's word tell us that it's not only probable, maybe even certain that our faith will be responded to with injustice and or oppression, even systemically. So listen, how, how do we respond to injustice? Well, part of the answer to this question comes to us verses later something that James focuses more on in the next passage, having patience in the midst of suffering, waiting on the coming of our Lord. But here from this passage, we can just see three brief things here that will provide an answer as to how we should respond to injustice as the people of God. 
The first one we can learn directly from James himself. So how should we respond to injustice? Speak to it. Speak to it. Even speak against it. James is talking not just to a local issue, but to people scattered throughout the Roman Empire through the dispersion who are experiencing these injustices. He sees it around him. He's heard about it. As a man whose father and older brother were carpenters, part of the poor working class, they might have experienced this firsthand. But notice James here doesn't remain silent. He doesn't wait for the right time to say something. He doesn't just bypass it with indifference or tell his congregation that they should be focused on other things. No, he speaks to this evil of injustice that he sees. How about us? Do we see the injustices around us? Or do we turn a blind eye? Maybe you're here and you're hesitant, maybe fearful to talk about some of the issues due to their lack of popularity or their lack of information, or, or maybe, maybe you're hesitant just because of what it will cost you to speak on these things. Not only should we speak to and against injustice, but we should speak to those affected by it listening to them, comforting them. James speaks to both the injustice that he sees and he speaks to those affected by it. He comforts this congregation in the denouncing of it. He encourages and teaches God's people, even in chapter two, not to perpetuate the cycle of this oppression by being partial to the very same unrighteous rich who are dragging them to court and oppressing them. He empathizes with them. He speaks compassionately. This fervency that he speaks with is, is grounded in compassion, looking to provide relief from this oppression. And James, his speech is grounded in the rock-solid truth that God is just and that he sees, and not only sees this injustice, but he will judge this injustice. So secondly, how do we respond to injustice? We don't just speak against it, speak to it, we speak to God. We speak to God in, in prayer. Have you ever experienced oppression? Maybe injustice in some form? Have you ever been taken advantage of by someone who is, has power over you or uh, uh, treated you unfairly? Maybe because of your background, your appearance, your ethnicity, your gender, even your faith. Listen, if so, you know that it hurts. It is painful. The cries of these first century field workers aren't just limited to them alone. Some of you have cried these tears. I know I have cried these tears from experiencing unfairness in the workplace to experiencing injustice due to the color of my skin, mistreatment because of my faith, witnessing injustice happen to people I'm close with, people I don't even know in this world. 
hurts. It's painful every single time. And so if you experience this, if you've witnessed injustice, God wants us, if we've been affected by injustice, he wants us to know something. He hears our cries. He hears our cries. We can speak to him. We can tell him about the vengeance that we desire, the unfairness that we've suffered, the very real pain that we feel. And look, we can pray to him. We can know. We can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is just and that he hears and he will respond. We can know that there will be a day of judgment where he makes all things right. Listen, as the God of hosts, look at how James addresses him, the God of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, as the Old Testament addresses him, meaning the God of the armies of heaven, the God who owns and rules over all creation, who welcomes both the poor and the oppressed and listens to them. He will wage war against injustice and he will put an end to oppression. On the day that he judges the world through one man, Jesus Christ, injustice will end. Racism will cease. Discrimination will be no more. Terrorism will be crushed. The innocent won't be killed, trafficked, brutalized, cheated. Unfairness and all forms of just injustice will be destroyed. And it's the knowledge about this just God who will judge on this day that now fuels James not to defer his hope to the future. James, are you so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? No, no, no. It's this knowledge that now moves him to speak against injustice in the present. Let's just pause for a moment. Look, let's be clear just really quickly. James isn't preaching a social gospel here. Again, on the contrary, it's actually James's trust in God's justice and his future judgment that now leads him to speak in the present. As one scholar says, his emphasis on future retribution doesn't blind James to the current social problems. It strengthens his social conscience. So no, this is no social gospel. I, I just want to be clear about that. The implication from this text is not that wealth is always bad or that the rich always exploit the poor or, the poor, or even that God always sides with the poor over the rich or vice versa. The solution proposed here isn't the attempt to rid the world of all injustice here and now in an effort to form some sort of utopian society. James isn't calling for a redistribution of wealth or even placing his ultimate hope in Rome's ability to change its legislation. The solution presented here is this. James speaks against injustice. You and I should speak against injustice, not in an attempt to save the world as it is presently, but to point to something. It's to point to a coming kingdom, a new world, a new heavens, and a new earth where there will be no injustice. And to point ultimately to the God with whom there is perfect justice. The God who has displayed perfect and redeeming justice on our behalf. So lastly, how do we respond to injustice? Well, like James, we can speak against it. We can pray and we can cry out to God knowing that God's judgment will smash injustice. 
But unlike James, you and I, we live in a society where our voices can be heard. We live in a society where our cries of injustice can be heard by both our Lord and also by our establishments. The poor in this passage, they had no rights, no equality, but us, we, we have both. And yes, we have the grace to wait patiently and endure the injustices that we face in this world, as James will touch on in the next passage, but we also have both the ability and the opportunity to act, to act righteously and correct injustice when we see it. And so the question for us is how can we use the opportunities, the privileges that we have that God has given us to righteously act and to point others to what justice looks like in this world and ultimately point to the justice the God, of God's justice? How can we use the opportunities and privileges that we have to point to God's justice? So let's recap. Before we move to a conclusive condemnation, we see that in this divine lawsuit, James has reasoned with the unrighteous rich. He's indicted them for injustice, and now that all the evidence has been presented, now that all the witnesses have taken the stand, James now begins to, to make his closing arguments that will be a, a threefold conclusive condemnation. In verse 5, he says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The life lived in luxury and self-indulgence, again, points to the greediness of the unrighteous rich. And it's not that luxury in itself is a sin. It's what the rich are using it for, ultimately for themselves, for their satisfaction, for their ultimate pleasure. They've set themselves up as the God of their own hearts, and their aim is to please themselves by, by any means. And so this self-indulgence has blinded them also to the plight of the workers who are employed by them. They've excluded all others. They've even excluded God, failing to realize that it's him that they're ultimately accountable to. And so by breaking his law and his commandments, their greed and their self-indulgence is likened to the way that a cattle fattens itself with the grass of the field not knowing that with every mouthful of green grass, it's moving one step closer to the slaughter. It's like the parable of the rich fool that is in Luke chapter 18 that Robert mentioned last week. This man, he stores up for himself everything that he needs so nicely. He's got it looking good in his barns. Everything looks great. He's got enough for that he needs for the rest of his life. But yet he fails to, re to, to realize that he's accountable to God for his soul. And the unrighteous rich are just like this. They're just like this, focused only on themselves and their possessions, passively neglecting the needy, but also actively oppressing them, even murdering them. In chapter two, James again told the poor in his congregation that these were the people who were oppressing them by dragging them into court. And now he's calling these unrighteous rich out for condemning the innocent, for condemning the righteous person, the person who can't even retaliate against them. Listen, there's almost nothing worse than someone with power, authority, and resources using that power, whether earned or given, to abuse, oppress, and even murder an innocent or unresisting person. 
Whether murder in this verse is literal or figurative is neither here nor there. In the sight of God, actions such as these will be condemned by God at the judgment. And this is James's condemnation of the rich. They've lived in self-indulgence. They've neglected and resisted others, and they've murdered and condemned the righteous person who doesn't even resist them. Friends, who are, who are you in this scenario? Who are you in this passage? Listen, I know you might have experienced oppression before and injustice treated unfairly. I get that. I understand that. I, I hear you. But let's not be too quick to only identify with the victims here. Listen, as I stated previously, we are the rich. And I don't just mean that in the sense that we have more than everyone else in this world. I I mean that if we're honest, we are the self-indulgent. This indictment is ours. We're the ones centered on ourselves. We're the self-indulgent money lovers, drug users, power grabbers, porn watchers, gossipers, racists, idolaters, coveters. We've set ourselves up as central in our hearts and we have pursued any means necessary to find satisfaction even at the expense of others. We fatten our hearts and fill them with the temporary and fleeting pleasures of this world, thinking that through them we can find ultimate satisfaction, that we can make the best versions of ourselves. And we want accountability to no one. We want our worlds to consist of the people, of us and the people who make us better. We're the rich. And just like the rich, in our pursuit of self-indulgence and self-glorification, we have contributed to the condemnation and the murder of the righteous person. Wait, the righteous person. The only one perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ. See, James includes this last verse here because in one sense, the the people who are being oppressed and murdered and treated unjustly are righteous in the sense that they have done nothing to deserve such treatment. But their situation only reflects a greater picture where the self-indulgent people of this world condemned and murdered another righteous person, a perfectly righteous person, Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of their suffering and their oppression in this world, God wants these people who have been oppressed, who have experienced injustice, he wants them to feel solidarity. See, this this isn't just the experience of scattered Jews throughout the Roman Empire. This isn't just your experience and my experience if we've ever experienced injustice or oppression. No, this is the experience of Jesus who was condemned and put to death by a powerfully corrupt system that murdered him although he was innocent. See, he knows what it's like to be terrorized, discriminated against, misjudged, violently victimized, oppressed, and abused. Yes, certainly he was powerful enough to put an end to his sufferings, but as the suffering servant, he had no one to defend him. He had no one who heard his cries. And he didn't resist those who would take his life. He was treated unjustly, sold, being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and condemned mercilessly by by self-indulgent religious and political leaders who only had their interest in mind. 
And so James writes this because he wants us to feel solidarity if we've ever witnessed or experienced injustice. But he also writes this because in the sufferings of Jesus and through his death, self-indulgent, fat-hearted, idolatrous, pleasure-pursuing sinners can be pointed to a just God who not only doesn't give us what we deserve, but he's a God who shows us that he is more than just and that he gives us what we do not deserve, acquittal. Forgiveness, righteousness, through Jesus bearing the punishment for our sin. And so in this great picture of the sufferings of Jesus, James wants us to feel solidarity, yes, but also sorrow. Godly sorrow that will move us to repentance. Because it's we who condemned him and murdered him. In a situation that appeared to be grossly unjust at the hands of wicked men, God justly punished his son and Jesus was punished for our sins. He was bruised and crushed for our iniquities. He bore on the cross the penalty for our idolatry, our self-indulgence, and our crimes. On the cross, he died for both the sins of the oppressed and the sins experienced by oppressor. But he died for the sins experienced by the oppressed and the sins of oppressors, bearing the wrath of God that all people deserved. Though he was rich, he did not squander or hoard or uh, or keep to himself the wealth and the fellowship that he had, but instead. He humbled himself. He became poor so that we might become rich. The perfectly righteous person became sin who knew no sin so that we, the self-indulgent, might become the righteousness of God in him. It's in his death that Jesus faced the day of slaughter that we deserved and that we fattened ourselves for, for our selfishness. And three days later, he is resurrected in the power of God, removing the greatest oppression that you and I and anyone will ever face, the oppression of sin for all of those who trust in him, giving us acceptance with God, the God who now gives us an immovable hope and an eternal joy that we can have even through the midst of the cruelest injustices that we'll face in this world. To summarize Romans chapter 8, verse 35, because God demonstrated his justice in punishing his son for our sin, will he not much more bring justice to the injustices that we face in this world? This is the hope we have in a just God who has demonstrated his perfect righteousness and his justice but also his love and mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. At the cross, the judgment and justice of God met and kissed the mercy and the love of God through the sacrifice of Jesus in our place for our sins so that through him we receive righteousness. Today, if you are here and you have placed your faith in this finished work of Jesus and his righteousness, And maybe you identify here with these rich, with the self-indulgence, with the greedy, with even those who have neglected the needs of others. You can come to the table and be reminded of the broken body and shed blood that gave you justice when you didn't deserve it. 
And as we take a moment to reflect, we can think about the ways that we can demonstrate this justice, this goodness that we've received from God to this world that we live in. But you can be reminded through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that God has displayed his love and his justice to you, rightly forgiving your sins. Confess your sins to him, and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If that's you and your hope is in the person and work of Christ, you can receive the, the bread and the cup today. But if you're here and maybe you're unfamiliar with this and the person and the work of Jesus, if maybe you see the justice of God and you're not quite sure what that looks like, if, if God takes justice on you for your self-indulgence, for your sins, for the ways that you've broken his law. I want to encourage you to take a moment to stay at your seat. And I want to encourage you, as James encouraged his congregation, to cry out to God. He will hear. He, he will hear your cries. He will respond. Remain at your seat and you can pray. If you aren't sure what quite to pray, you can look on the back of your bulletin and watch as those who were self-indulgent, those who were greedy, those who were unrighteous, those who were, had no power in and of ourselves to be righteous. Watch as those people come forward to receive and to be reminded of the righteousness and acceptance that we have through God, through Jesus. Take a moment to reflect and in a moment we'll come up for communion.